If I were to tell you that I was holding a book of Jewish interest, and in the book we have cameo roles featuring Galileo, Pliny the Elder, Harry Truman, Mahatma Gandhi, Napoleon, Vladimir Nabokov, Julius Caesar, and Carl Linnaeus, you'd probably be very hard-pressed to figure out what the book is about. But in fact, there is a thread that runs among these different characters, and that is, of course, a thread of blue. The book is The Rarest Blue, The Remarkable Story of an Ancient Color Lost to History and Rediscovered by Baruch Sturman, written together with his collaborator and his wife, uh, Judy Taubes Sturman. Uh, Baruch, this is a book that describes the 1300-year mystery and quest and scientific journey and historical journey of what happened to Tchelet, the blue thread of Tzitzit, and how many different people over the centuries were interested and involved in rediscovering it, and how it actually, in the last 25 years or so, has actually come back uh, to being, so that it adorns the tzitzis and the talitot of people in, in shuls the world over. So tell us a little bit about the book and how you came to write it and how you came to be involved in this, in this quest. Well, it's actually uh, almost a 4,000 year story dating back all the way to the uh, Isle of Crete and the ancient Minoans who first discovered shellfish dyeing. Of course, it became fabulously expensive, uh, immediately sought after by anybody who wanted blue and purple on their clothes, and this was the only way to get it. Uh, there was no other way to get blue uh, for your clothes, any kind of a dye, so it became fabulously expensive uh, and a desirable commodity. And the Jews took it, as they did with everything uh, that was beautiful and expensive, and uh, figured out or, or, or sanctified it uh, for, the, uh, for the service of God in the temple, in the Mishkan, in the Beit HaMikdash, and, uh, and also on every Jew's uh, clothes, the thread of Tchelet, as we say in the Shema, uh, and when you put that thread of Tchelet on your garment, on the corner of your clothes, you'll look at that string, and you'll remember all the commandments of God. So, um, this was uh, an extremely important mitzvah, and strange enough, and that was really one of the, one of the, 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 one of the things that jumps out at you, is something so important, so fundamental, that reminds you of all of the commandments of God, how did it get lost? Uh, how could it be that something so important to the Jewish people could ever, could ever have gotten uh, uh, forgotten? And yet it was, for 1300 years, and uh, the greatest of, uh, uh, of uh, halachic researchers tried to uh, figure out what it was and how, how it came back. Among them, 150 years ago, the great Hasidic Rebbe, Rav Gershon Henech Leiner, the Radziner Rebbe, after him, Rav Herzog, the, uh, who would be the first chief rabbi of Israel. And uh, we came into this uh, maybe about 20, uh, 20 or 25 years ago, completely by accident. Uh, I had to uh, take a scuba diving course as my, 
uh, as my, my uh, physical ed for Columbia. And so I knew how to scuba dive. Uh, my friend Joel Guberman from Asbury Park knew how to scuba dive. Ari Greenspan knew how to scuba dive. And here we were, all friends uh, in NCSY and in high school. And then later on, friends here after we made Aliyah. Uh, Joel, by accident, met a rabbi, Rabbi Tevger, who said, you know, I kind of uh, rediscovered this trailet, but if I can't get the snails for them. I need scuba divers. And Joel said, hey, I've got this, just the group for you. But uh, uh, scuba diving was the beginning. It kind of turned into a passion, and a passion turned into an obsession. And uh, an obsession almost, I would say, turned into an I. Uh, it's the way I almost define myself at this point now. This is what our house is. This is what... Uh, what we are, we're trailers through and through. <laughs> True blue. True blue. One of the one of the really enchanting things about the book, uh, for uh, you know, there's so many uh, different things thrown in. Um, I particularly appreciated the chapter titles. You must have labored <laughs> on the chapter titles because in order to catch the references and all the chapter titles, everything from uh, from uh, Miles Davis to, uh, <laughs> to to who knows what. Uh, uh, to, to Dora the Explorer yeah. <laughs> and everything else. It's just, uh, it's just uh, one of the charming things about the book. The book itself, I, I should just mention, is, a, is, a, is itself a, a thing of beauty. It's, it's incredibly beautifully produced. Uh, uh, two sets of full-color uh, pictures. It would be hard to, to produce the book without the, without the color photographs because so much of it has to do with, uh, with color. Um, and, and it's really just a beautiful book. And while I'm mentioning that, I should say that in other words, we who read books of Jewish interest, books of Jewish thought, books of Jewish history, books of uh, halakha, uh, even if the books are very significant uh, and, and, and important, uh, we, we're usually used to books being uh, rather poorly written. <laughs> and it's just something we've you know, come to understand is, the, uh, is the, cost of, the cost of doing business when you want to read a Jewish book. This book is incredibly well written. I understand you had uh, some help. We did. Uh, by, uh, doing that. Aside from my wife, who uh, can certainly write way better than me, I write like a scientist. And uh, uh, Judy writes uh, far more beautifully. But uh, we had on top of that a little help from Judy's father, Professor Leo Tal- so, Talbis, so who the, taught 40 years uh, in English literature at Yeshiva College. Uh, but so the book is incredibly well written. It, it reads almost like a, like, at points, almost like a mystery book. Uh, Indiana Jones, you're waiting for Indiana Jones <laughs> to show up. Um, uh, the, the, the adventure of the thing. But I tried, as I was going through on the back of an envelope, I jotted down a few different a few different disciplines that those of you that are involved in this, and certainly you as the author of a book about it, need to be fluent in. Fill me in. I'm sure I'm missing a few, but I jotted down marine biology, scuba diving, uh, color chemistry, linguistics, physics, fiber analysis, archaeology, marine archaeology, history, botany, halakha, and snail milking. (laughs) So... uh, it's, it's a polymath's uh, delight, and it draws on all these... In many ways, it's reminiscent of this genre of, of these micro-histories, where they'll take some topic, whether it's codfish or rats or salt, and if you understand this one minuscule topic, you can unravel all of world economics or Western civilization or the history of Manhattan or, or, or whatnot. So to a certain degree, the book also reads like that. It's, it's a tour of, yeah. of world history. It's a tour of 
Jewish history through the prism of this blue thread missing and then rediscovered. Well, I'll say this. I have been uh, involved with Tchelet for over 20 years now and there hasn't been a day that's gone by that I haven't learned something new. And no matter what direction you go in, you'll always find some connection uh, back. So all of these disciplines that you mentioned, certainly uh, to, to write the book, we had to be familiar with them. And you know, By training, you, by training you're a physicist. I, I'm a physicist. So the physics chapter was at least something that I uh, felt comfortable doing. But um, even with Google today, uh, in order to do this properly, we never would, no one person I think could ever have done this properly. So what we did is we went to the experts in all of these fields. In marine biology and experts in snails, Dr. Kirsten Benkendorf from Australia helped out with that chapter. And uh, uh, the archaeochemistry, Professor Tzvi Koren looked it over to make sure that we didn't do anything wrong there. Back in uh, looking in Hittite uh, or, or uh, uh, Assyriology, Professor, uh, Professor Wayne um, uh, from... Uh, 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 from, uh, from the Hebrew University. Uh, Elon Sharon helped us with a chapter on Dor. So we have, uh, we really had a lot of help with all Dor is the, the marine archaeological Dor, site. Uh, Dor was the archaeological here, site. And underwater uh, marine archaeology, Kurt Rave, the expert in that. So we've really these, had... All of these figures make these uh, kind right. of cameo appearances in the, in the narrative. Exactly. And how exactly. they came in. And there were also, you know, there were quite a few of them who were non-Jewish people. You, Tell the story of the fellow in uh, in England. John Edmonds. Yes, yeah. John Edmonds, who pa- yeah. passes away at some point yeah, yeah. in the middle of the book. Uh, you know, and his interest. You know, when you'd approach someone like this, this Edmonds in England, who who, who worked in a, some what was it, a Victorian yes. museum, a, uh, a museum that helped uh, uh, understand uh, how people lived in uh, in Victorian times, yeah. Yeah. So medieval he, but, times. But he happened to be his expertise was dying, uh, dying wood. And then uh, we got Tim to, to be curious about how to right. do natural uh, dyeing with snails. Now, so did he understand that there was, as we would say in our, in our kind of uh, insider parlance, that there's a nafkamina la halacha, that you were really interested, this wasn't some kind of abstract uh, uh, academic question of how ancient dyes were done, but you wanted to re reinstitute a, a mitzvah or a ritual observance? Well, you know, people... What was, how, did you, how did these people that came into the orbit of this project, how did they understand what you were really after? All of these people, I think, understand what it means to be passionate about a subject. And it's hard to ask an academic, you know, why did you choose this arcane field to, to spend your life researching? And yet, everybody believes uh, that... I think scientists believe all any advancement in human knowledge and in science is a good thing and could potentially lead to uh, important practical applications. Now take Kirsten Benkendorf, right? Uh, figuring out what exactly is the sex of a hermaphrodite snail, right? You would say what could possibly ever come out of that? <laughs> There's a few very funny lines in the chapter that, that deal with the question of sexing snails. And yet, her work led her to uh, important, very important discoveries that are leading now cancer to research. Yeah, cancer research and to an understanding of the, uh, uh, of the um, 
of the different processes that go on in the snail and how they could possibly uh, affect and, and benefit humans. And in fact, one of the things that was really encouraging, I sent the book to Kirsten afterwards and I, uh, she, I sent her chapter to her to look at beforehand, but then afterwards I sent her the whole book and she said, you know, wow, all of a sudden my research is put into a completely different context. I never thought about the history of the snail before and I never thought about what it meant on a religious or a spiritual level. Mm-hmm. And even, and this was really a wonderful, uh, a wonderful bit of, uh, of a compliment, she said, you know, when I read about the chemistry and the pH and this, it gave me some ideas for some new experiments for me to do. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that's the idea for everybody to just get new ideas and a little bit of a different uh, take on, uh, on this topic. So just walk us through very briefly the, the, the history. Um, around the year 620... About the year 620, Trelet is lost. Trelet was associated with the Roman Empire. Purple uh, dying, blue and purple dying, was a state monopoly under imperial control even in this area. Uh, in the area of Israel, that is, along the northern coast and into, uh, and into uh, Lebanon and Syria. It was all under imperial control. So back and forth, Israel was conquered first by the, uh, the Sassanid Persians and then by the Christians and then eventually, ultimately, by the Arabs. Uh, and during the span of ten years, all of this is going on. And when the Arabs conquered this whole area, they wanted to obliterate anything that had to do with Rome, and especially the dye houses, which had such a connection to the Roman, uh, to the Roman uh, imperial house. That was destroyed, and in the turmoil, whenever Israel was, was conquered, the one thing that all the conquerors had in common was they uh, tortured and persecuted the Jews. So the Jewish community here in Eretz Israel was completely decimated. Any tradition was going to be lost, and especially these traditions which had some kind of a connection to Rome, there was really no way we could have hoped to keep these traditions after that. Meaning they had a connection to Rome. We dyed, you know, snail dye in order to produce trelit in the times of the Beit HaMikdash for the big day Kehuna, and for daily use for, for tzitzit. But the persecution of Roman culture, a side effect of that was also wiping out the Jewish dye industry. Well, for many hundreds of years before Trelet was uh, lost, the uh, use of Trelet was regulated and more than regulated, it was banned for the common man by the Roman, uh, by the Roman imperial authorities. Because it was, because it was precious. It, it was, was reserved for the aristocracy. It, it, exactly. It was two things. It was fabulously expensive, so there were profits to be made by the people who controlled the industry. And the imperial house wanted that. And secondly, it was associated in prestige and, um, class and, rank. and in class and rank with the nobility. So anybody, and you have this in uh, Theodosius and in Justinian, clearly, anybody who wears or owns purple or blue shellfish dyed fabric is, it, is an offense tantamount to treason punishable by death. So the Jews had a very, very hard time keeping the mitzvah of Tchelet, even again for, for hundreds of years before, before this. Um, it was expensive and the Jews were very, very poor. It was rare. And on top of it, it was dangerous. 
So for all of these reasons, the Gemara says, Gadol on Shoshel Avan, me on Shoshel Tcheret. We can understand when you don't wear Tcheret, it's very, very difficult. But you have to, wear, you have to wear white. You have to wear tzitzit. Which was the practice. Which was probably... It's still the predominant practice today, despite all of your, yes. your best efforts. And whoever had Tcheret, they would probably have kept it for very special occasions, handed down from father to son. Yeah. It was probably a very, very rare uh, yeah. thing for people to have Tcheret. So fast forward to the... We'll skip through uh, the Radziner. Uh, he's a hero of the book, and, and uh, yes. readers should... And a hero of art. ...concentrate on, on the Radziner. But skip ahead to Rav Herzog. Tell us about Rav Herzog and, and his uh, progress, his, his moving the whole issue forward and then hitting a brick wall. Yeah. Rav Herzog is really just such a role model for anybody who wants to get at truth in any way, but certainly for a, a kind of a Jew that is so rare, knows everything about everything, and feels that everything is fair game. If you're trying to find out something, halacha, you can use anything to get at truth. And that's such a rare uh, breed of individual, first of all, somebody who feels that way, and second of all, somebody who can do that. I mean, Chinese to ancient linguistics of, uh, of anything you can imagine, and chemistry, and uh, history and archaeology, everything was available to Rav Herzog. Just an unbelievable polymath. Just, just like Rav Herzog was born in Poland. He's raised in England. In Leeds in England. In England. He, he, and then he becomes he, chief rabbi in well, Ireland. First in, in Dublin. In Dublin and then of and, Ireland. And then of Ireland. And in he 1935 becomes, he becomes yes, he chief rabbi after right. Cook dies. Right. He passes away here in 1959. 1959 he passed away. And uh, we, we did a lot of research on Rav over the years, including speaking to his namesake, right. uh, his grandson, and his son, who, his late son, Chaim Herzog, who was the president of right. the state of Israel. Right, right. Chaim Herzog, we initially, we gave a talis to, uh, to uh, Chaim Herzog back when he was president. So Rav Herzog is an amazing person, but Rav Herzog had a problem. It's the problem that everybody had for 150 years. These snails, it was... I would say assumed, but it, it, it's more than that. It was almost taken as a fact. It really was taken as a fact that these snails produced a purple dye. Now, for the secular world, that wasn't a problem. You had a blue-purple that was produced by some snails, like the Murex trunculus, and that which was is our, called, our which is our snail, and that was called blue-purple. And red-purple was the Tyrian uh, purple or the Argaman. So you have Argaman, you have Tchelet, and everything is fine if you're in the secular world, if you're a historian, archaeologist. Rav Herzog refused to accept that, and Rav Herzog was he in was a tradition... He was certain it had to be sky Rav Herzog went with the tradition that started with the Teferet Yisrael, who was the first to really consider these snails, but again, rejected them because they, they, were, purple. they were purple. And... Then the Radziner, of course, didn't even start to look at these snails because the Tverestral had already rejected them because they were purple. Rav Herzog, with a little bit more uh, proof from archaeology and chemistry, but nonetheless, he couldn't... He was, he was at this brick wall, as you say. The only thing he could do, there, were only, there was really only one thing he could do, and that would be to join the ranks of all of the secular world, the scientists and the historians, who said, Tchelet must have been a violet color, purple Blue. But this is a fascinating example, almost, I'd say unique, of Torah Umada, where Rav Herzog says, no, I am not going to accept Mada, 
because our tradition says it was sky blue. And he challenged the scientists to figure out what they were doing wrong. If you say that this is a snail, then you must be doing something wrong in the dying. If not, then find me another snail that gives me a blue dye. And he challenged them to do that and stood fast. And lo and behold, it was unfortunately after his death. But in the late 60s, when this uh, research started going on into the chemistry of these snails, it eventually led to Otto Elsner's great discovery of how to actually get a blue dye out of these snails. And Rav Herzog was completely vindicated. It's the tale of Torah Umada, where Torah said, you go figure it out, Mada. And Mada came back yeah. and said, yes, I, I we think, were wrong. I think that, and uh, if, I know many of our listeners are involved in, in education, uh, broadly speaking. Um, the question of Torah Umada, I think the book is an excellent demonstration of Mada, of, of, of Torah Umada. Uh, very often, uh, the discussion about Torah Umada, the interaction between Torah and general culture, between Torah and science, however it's defined, uh, become some kind of debate or advocacy of, or it's a lot of um, it's a lot of tell but not enough show. Uh, there's no agenda. You're, you're not you're not pushing Torah. The words Torah Mada don't appear in the book. It's just uh, it's just itself a a heftza of Torah Mada. It's a, it's a it's a it's one whole one whole unit of of showing how all of these disciplines that we enumerated earlier. Uh, how they can be marshaled in the service of, in the service of Torah, and and it's just such a wonderful example of how Mada can learn from Torah and Torah can learn from science. Today's daf is daf ayin hey in Shabbat. Hatzad chilazon If you break the chilazon open, are you taking its life? And is that a good thing? No, it's a bad thing because the snail has to be alive. The Gemara says, the more that the snail is alive, the better the die. What is that? Where did that come from? Those exact words are found in Aristotle, that the fishermen like to take the snails when they are alive. And Aristotle maybe didn't understand the chemistry, the biochemistry behind it. And perhaps uh, uh, in the Gemara, they also were not familiar with that biochemistry. But today we know there is an enzyme in the snail that decomposes very quickly after death. And that Enzyme is an integral, integral part of the dye turning into what should be. Mm-hmm. Without it, it doesn't work. So history meets Gemara, meets biochemistry. Meets fish and, guts. Right. <laughs> meets and, snail and guts. All of them are coming together to help in, uh, in understanding this, uh, this topic. Now, th- this being said, uh, the, the, the peon to Torumada, the book itself is written... For a, for a general reader, not even necessarily a Jewish reader. In fact, it's published by the by the Lions Press by a by a general publisher. Um, why why were you motivated to write the book in 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 a more uh, universalistic uh, tone or in a more uh, general tone, aiming for a broader readership? Yeah. Well, there's a number of reasons. The first is that we didn't feel that this should be a story that was only the uh, the Otsar, the treasury, uh, the treasure of, uh, of um, halachic Jews, religious Jews, or any one uh, denomination of Jews. It's a beautiful mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that brings you close to God, and that should be something that's available certainly to all uh, uh, to all walks, uh, uh, all Jews of all walks of, uh, of life. So we wanted to make it accessible to everybody. Beyond that. Um, 
It really is something that has universal overtones. The idea of coming close to God, the idea of blue as something that is beyond you. It puts it's blue is interesting. It it's the sky and the sea, right? The two infinities. And infinity has two meanings. On the one hand, it teaches us humility because it puts us in perspective. But on the other hand, it challenges us to reach beyond what we think we're capable of. And those two things are, 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 are two things that a, that a religious person should always keep with them. And then there's also a, a, another little bit of, a, of an agenda that we had here. Reaching the Times bestseller. Well, <laughs> the, the ultimate goal of this is to spread the idea of Tchelet, to spread the, 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 the topic far and wide so that it becomes a household word and that it's just something that's understood. Yes, Tchelet, at least potentially, is available today. You know, we once had a, we had a meeting with one um, very, very well-respected rabbi here in Israel. And we said, you know, there, we, we just can't seem to reach these ultra-religious Rabbanim, they're just not going for it. They don't, they don't. So he said, you know what? You're never going to go through the front door here. What you have to do is you have to convince the entire world that this is Tchelet. And then the Rabbanim will come around. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe we hope at least that this book will have uh, some small effect in trying to convince the world mm-hmm. that Tchelet is from the Mira Trunculus and available today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and if that is the case, then uh, it'll seep back in through the back door. Um, the, in terms of the aim of the book, for general, general beyond you know, the idea that people should become convinced that this is in fact it, we have rediscovered it, for general readers who, who themselves may not be uh, tzitzis wearers or, or even, uh, you know, or not tzitzit wearers, or not even Jewish, what are you hoping they're going to take away from the book? I think that there's... Um, there is a beauty here in, uh, in understanding something which is so cross-cultural and, and, and goes across the ages. This was a way of coming close to God and a, and a way of expressing spirituality to the Jew. It was something that was meaningful to so many people in ancient times. And it's something that's still meaningful today to so many people. Uh, blue, and when you, um, when, when you get down deep into it, uh, there are so many hidden things here. The physics of, uh, uh, of blue, the psychology behind, yeah, behind blue. Expressed very uh, And all of those are there, which you know, each person I think will take away what, uh, whatever it is that they, uh, that they can. I think that this is something that will, you know, I think if somebody reads this book, there is no way that they will not have some feeling when they see a thread of Tchelet mm-hmm. uh, and they'll uh, uh, to the Jew and perhaps the non-Jew will, uh, will see this as something that, uh, that they're jealous of one of the th- subliminal themes that comes through the book the portraits of, of the, the main movers and shakers in the book and I include yourself and your, your friends uh, you know, in, in this group from the Radziner to certainly Rav Herzog, to Rabbi Tavgar, uh, and you know you and uh, Joel, Joel and Ari and and, and, and the crew. Um, there's a very very strong uh, autodidactic streak 
these are all people who they're just interested in something and they're going to make these breakthroughs, academic breakthroughs, intellectual breakthroughs, spiritual breakthroughs by working at it hard. And that certainly comes through uh, with the Radziner. I, I made a note in one point in the book, you, you mentioned it at some point when telling the story of how of Liner, how the Radzina Rov uh, uh, was, uh, you know, came to this about his his break with the Kotzker, uh, uh, another his grandfather of Meshivach, right? Uh, right. Well, and as the the, the original, um, and I and I wrote to myself, you say something. I'm looking for the for the place. Um, you say that in a certain date, 1860, whatever it was, he became passionate about figuring this out. And I wrote in the margin, why? Right. Like, why did he become passionate? How did that happen? But then, then it occurred to me as I kept reading, it's a silly question. Because when you're a person of the, these characteristics, a puzzle like this is not going to be left on the shelf. You're going to have to try to figure it out. And that's true for, for all of the people that are involved in doing this, both, I should say, the Jews as well as the non-Jewish yeah. academics who, who, who take cameo roles. What does that say about, well, what does that say about you know, what's needed in, in, in the Jewish world? What does it say about yeah. the contemporary state and direction of, of Jewish education? Um, and you know, what's the next, you know, how do you... Well, do you I, would say, I, I would say that there's, there's a distinction that I would certainly draw between the Radziner and uh, Rav Herzog and even Rabbi Tevger on the one side. And okay. uh, myself, I, I can't speak for Joel and Ari, maybe I can, <laughs> Moise, Asaf. I can't speak for them, but I can speak for myself. This is not a story of somebody who is, at least from my side, it's not that this was brilliant, that I went out looking to bring back a lost mitzvah. This is a story about an extremely ordinary person who realized that for whatever reason, he found himself in the situation where he was given the gift of being able to do something extraordinary. And if there's anything that's to be learned from this, it's that we find ourselves in these situations throughout life. And most of the time, we just walk by. We don't even realize that we have that opportunity. This was a case where we took that opportunity. We were on the beach that day when we first discovered these snails and we were told about them, and we could have just as easily broken open the snails or not broken open the snails, scuba dive, brought up 150 snails, and walked away and said, wow, that was an interesting experience. But we didn't do that. We said, whoa, this is something that we have to grab onto with both of our hands. Mm -hmm. And it never would have been possible if we didn't have the absolute encouragement and support of our wives and family behind us saying, Hey, this is, go, go for it. I took two years off of my, um, my career in physics and, 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 and high tech to work on figuring out how we could mass produce these, uh, uh, these sets. Yes, that's now, that's, abs that's not something that you can do uh, without, uh, without your wife and family completely, completely behind you. So that's the real thing. I think that well, people people should should look towards that. What are the things me, that we're missing? So let me take it back to the to the question about education and schooling and etc. Schooling, by definition, is, often goes in a different direction. 
what might we do to, you know, beyond you know, giving this book out to every uh, 10th grader in Jewish day schools to read, um, which, which, which isn't a bad idea, um, but, uh, but what, what might we do to produce yeah. more of this kind of, I don't want to say entrepreneurial, because that <laughs> has a profit sense and no one's gotten rich off of this, but, uh, but the kind of halachic entrepreneurism, yeah. of, of uh, adventurism, of, of autodidactism, yeah. of, you know, it, it, it's 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 a great question. I'm not an educator, so I, I, the the good thing is I don't have any, I'm not I don't have smicha. I'm not an educator, so I can say whatever I want, and I don't I don't have any responsibility <laughs> to anything behind it. But I, I would say a few things. I, first of all, what I go I speak about this all over the place. My favorite audience to speak to is those who are just finishing high school, and the message that I give them is this: that first of all, take a chance. What's the worst that can happen? You'll fail? Okay. Take a chance. The second message is, there's a lot out there that hasn't been done yet. So when anybody tells you, oh, there's no way that you can make a difference, do not listen to them. Go out there. You can make a difference. You can bring back a mitzvah that was lost for 1,300 years. And the other thing is, and again, here, lack of, ed- of being an educator and, 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 and not even a rabbi, so I'm going to say it. I'll put it out there. Don't be afraid to learn anything and everything. Because, you know, I was having this discussion with somebody and they said, oh sure, that particular rabbi, he knows everything about everything. So for him, he can learn this or he can learn that. And I said to them, that's not the issue of knowing everything about everything. You have to have the attitude that everything you know should help you understand everything else you know a little bit better. Make those connections, learn what you learn, ask questions, and I think that could lead to a little bit more innovation, if you will. Yeah. I don't know if that's a good word, yeah. but... Uh, just before we finish, just the, the tachlis of tchelet. <laughs> so today there's an association, the Petil Tchelet uh, Amuta, uh, which has a, a, a factory in, uh, outside of right. Malay Adumim. Right. Uh, how many sets of tchelet are produced? We're producing now a little over a thousand sets a, uh, a month. And I would say maybe you probably are in two, maybe, maybe, maybe 300,000 people that are already wearing trailer. Mm-hmm. Rabbanim from all walks of life and, 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 and different people. You would be surprised where, where trailers will pop up from, uh, from uh, uh, a Chabura in Lakewood and a couple of people in the mirror. Some people wear it inside, some people are starting to wear it outside. Rabbis, modern Orthodox, there's a Magid Shir and Bells that's going around talking about Tchelet. And of course, of course, to all of the different uh, denominations of, uh, of Judaism, this is a beautiful, beautiful mitzvah. It's not a threatening mitzvah. It doesn't require anything. People tell us, oh my God, it's so much money. It's not that much money, certainly for one set. And that would never be the issue. I say this out loud to anybody who can hear me. If there's anybody out there who needs or wants a set of Tchelet and can't afford it, our organization will make Tchelet available. So that's not an issue. What's the website of the... www.tchelet.com And the way we spell Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T. Uh, and on the website you can also order sets of Tchelet. You can it's order sets of Tchelet. It's, it's, ava- it's available, you know what, 
unfortunately, it's not as available as it should be. And the biggest problem is tying it. We have to figure out how to, how to get around that issue. Uh, there are different well, for people to do their times. There's also the issue, which is not really dealt with in the book, only in, in passing, of different positions on how to tie yes. the tailor, the different shitot harishonim, yep. etc. But uh, right. that's, that's for a different time. But on the website, there's some... There, 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 right, there's some videos. Right. <laughs> there are videos, and there's all kinds of, uh, yeah. of uh, documents to try to explain it in diagrams. It's not, it's not, not trivial. Uh, it's a little bit of a challenge, but uh, certainly something that can be overcome. My 14-year-old is ap- absolutely adept at tying every yeah. different way. I'm Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid and Web Yeshiva. This has been another installment of our Jewish Educators Book Club, sitting with Dr. Baruch Sturman, discussing the book he and his co-author, Judy Talbot Sturman, and have wife. just released, The Rarest Blue, The Remarkable Story of an Ancient Color Lost to History and Rediscovered from Lions Press, available on Amazon.com. Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, it's actually in Barnes & Noble's bookstores, and in the Sfarim stores, hopefully it'll, uh, it'll be coming out, uh, or even if it's not there yet, in your local Sfarim store, please ask them to stock it. And it is also an associated website, as well as, of course, the Patil Techelet uh, website, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T yep. dot, dot com. com.